0: Hey Jay, so did Onslaught ever come back?
1: Oh, at least four times. That's assuming you count Red Onslaught.
0: Isn't Onslaught usually red?
1: Well, in this case it's less a descriptor and more a portmanteau. See, this Onslaught was actually the Captain America villain Red Skull.
0: Well that's... unconventional.
1: With a piece of Charles Xavier's brain grafted to his own. WHAT?! I'm Jay Editon.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 351 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome back to us. Uh, despite what our release order may imply, we actually haven't recorded in kind of a while, so it's nice to be back behind the mic.
1: Yeah, we took like two or three weeks off in the middle there.
0: We did. Um, I got married, so that's pretty cool. I, I, I married Anna, who's really great, and now we don't have to plan a wedding anymore, which is also really great, but the first part is like really great part.
1: And I got a cold.
0: Oh, I I think I definitely uh, got the better end of the deal here, Jay. Well. So, yeah, we are back. We may be a little rusty, uh, and Jay may sound a little, uh, well like he has a cold, but we are excited to talk more about Onslaught. We are? I'm excited. I mean, I don't really realize it until I take time off from the podcast, but I start to get the shakes if I can't talk with you about X-Men on the regular.
1: I mean, I like podcasting. I'm not sure if I'm specifically excited to talk more about Onslaught, because honestly, this is where Onslaught really starts to feel like it's dragging on.
0: You are not wrong, yeah. We are going to be dealing with uh, one of the core chapters and some spin off chapters, which are related, but you know. But yeah, we're in phase two now. We're going to be starting phase two. And while phase one felt pretty tight and overall was very good, phase two feels like it kind of has a lot of filler.
1: Yeah, phase two starts out messy, which is not a good sign.
0: But there is enough badass 90s-ness that I really can't fully complain. So, before we dive in, perhaps we should do a little bit of recap.
1: So, what's happened so far? What did Phase 1 cover?
0: Phase 1 covered Onslaught. And Onslaught is the frustration and repressed emotion of Charles Xavier, and the something-or-other of Magneto, made manifest as a great big Super Saiyan Gundam-looking Magneto psychic guy.
1: Onslaught has defeated the combined X-teams alongside the Fantastic Four and the Avengers.
0: He's also built a gigantic and impregnable Ebon Citadel in Central Park.
1: And he has captured Franklin Richards, the incredibly powerful mutant son of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman.
0: He's also hit Manhattan with an electromagnetic pulse that has probably killed, like, a lot of people.
1: So, things are looking pretty bad right now, like beyond the level of bad implied by Marvel in 1996.
0: <laughs> and that brings us to Uncanny X Men number 336 A Voice as Deep as Thunder.
1: This is written by Scott Lobdell, pencilled by Joe Madrera, inked by Tim Townsend, John Dell, and Vince Russell, and Al Milgram, colored by Steve Bugalato and Team Fuchs, and lettered by Richard Starkings in Comic Craft and Colia Fuchs. So, Inside Onslaught, Franklin Richards is doing his moppety best to wake up an apparently catatonic Charles Xavier, whom Franklin recognizes as a pal of his parents.
0: Before we proceed any further, can we comment on just how ridiculously muscular and ripped the unconscious Professor X is?
1: Oh, he always is in this era.
0: His shirt is also ripped. Kind of like, weirdly sexily.
1: I mean, if that's what you're into.
0: I don't know, maybe this is awakening something for me. Using its psychic might!
1: In that case, I'd highly recommend flipping over to the nescentine Romita run of Daredevil, which is all about this particular aesthetic. Noted. So, Onslaught is hell-bent on using Franklin to take over the world. Franklin, for his part, really just wants to go home. And Charles finally briefly wakes up for just long enough to explain to Franklin how to resist. But unfortunately, Onslaught overhears and stops him, and Onslaught at least claims to now be an entity entirely separate from Xavier. Granted, I needed you. A crucible of conflicting
2: emotions and untapped power that birthed me. But as you can see, I have grown far, far beyond that.
1: Outside, Uatu the Watcher and Apocalypse are keeping a close eye on things and basically being our commentary team. Apocalypse is generally pretty impressed with all the devastation going on. This is right up his alley.
0: Have we thought about Apocalypse and the Watcher as the Statler and Waldorf of this arc yet?
1: No, they're a little, well, Apocalypse at least is a little more murderous than Statler and Waldorf usually get.
0: Well, I don't know. I always thought of Statler and Waldorf as sort of neutral evil.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I'll buy that.
0: But let's talk a little about Apocalypse here, because right now Apocalypse is just watching and being impressed, but how does this tie into continuity, to his own goals?
1: Well, Apocalypse's whole thing is the survival of the fittest, so in general, he's usually pretty happy when a new superpower shows up and starts to, you know, go on the World Conquest train. At the
0: same time, he does his best to stop Onslaught later. We'll get to that in another issue we'll be covering this arc. And that really just makes me wonder, is he a hypocrite? Or does this tie into Louis Simonson's intended goals for him, where he mainly just wanted the Earth to be a place that would be approved of by the Celestials so that they wouldn't give it a thumbs down and annihilate
1: it? Well, I mean, I think Apocalypse wants the fittest to win. I think he just also wants the fittest to be him.
0: I mean, that's entirely legit. Self-preservation is a thing, and we have seen, uh, especially in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, him break his rules a little when it comes to his own desire for survival.
1: Oh, absolutely. He's definitely, definitely willing to generally bend that ethos, and honestly, it's an ethos that's very bendable when you look at it.
0: I think that's part of what makes him fun, is that he's, he's not this, like, purely idealistic, noble character. He is flawed, even though he thinks he's not. Also, he's giant and blue and has weird lips, and I respect those things, too.
1: I respect those things, honestly, a lot more than his goals. Legit. So the heroes keep on attacking Onslaught and failing and regrouping, and it's pretty clear that none of them are going to be able to break through.
0: And I love every panel of this. Joe Matarera draws this issue since it's uncanny and that's part of his run. And Matarera's version of the initial Onslaught form is so freaking amazing. Like, the way he draws Onslaught, Onslaught's surface is this perfect midpoint between armor and flesh. It's almost like an insectoid carapace and it just looks rad.
1: And we've also got a bunch of rad team-ups and, and events happening in the background. So, you know, we we have... Iceman and uh, the Human Torch and Hawkeye starting starting to team up, and then Hawkeye going off uh, with Psylocke to collect survivors. We've got Joseph again and again forced to reckon with the reality of Magneto's legacy, and finally getting talked down shockingly by Gambit. We've got uh, Reed Richards doing science back at the Baxter. Backst- building where teen Iron Man pushes through his injuries to get started on the Psy-Armor pattern they got from the Xavier protocols, and Cyclops and the Invisible Woman having feelings about their super-powered kids as Cyclops tries to talk her out of single-handedly going after Onslaught because he's got Franklin.
0: But let's go back to the Joseph Rogue gambit thing, because I really, really like the way that's handled in this issue. What, what were your thoughts on it?
1: I thought it was, I thought it was, um, yeah, I I thought it was handled pretty neatly. I think, in general, Rogue and Gambit's dynamic isn't really a surprise or a reveal here, but seeing how Joseph responds to sort of the revelation that people are really scared of him, that people see him as Magneto, with thinking, well, therefore, this is at least partly my fault, and I need to go face it head-on, is, I think, a really interesting development for the character.
0: And one kind of cool visual touch is that in this part of the arc, and in fact for a lot of Joseph's, like, history in this era, he's wearing the standard yellow and blue X-Men trainee uniform. Like, the sort of, yeah, the most generic, novice-based X-Men costume, which kind of fits the whole getting a a new, fresh start. It kind of makes you believe that just through association.
1: Finally, after an assault from Joseph, Onslaught opens up his chest compartment and reveals a trapped Xavier And in an absolutely delightful team-up, Cyclops, the Invisible Woman, and Thor manage to bust Xavier out. After a full power beam from Cyclops and further battering by the Invisible Woman, Onslaught asks,
2: Are you finished?
0: Cyclops replies,
1: I don't know. Thor, are we finished?
2: I say thee nay, for Odin, for Asgard, Xavier shall be free.
0: And Thor just flies through Onslaught's chest like a big himbo bullet and comes out the other side carrying Professor X. And the sound effect, Jay, how how would you pronounce this amazing sound effect?
1: Splosh crunch, splash crunch, splash crunch.
0: Oh, okay, maybe it's easier to pronounce if you're one of the Aesir, Uh, but it's just, it's a big, dumb Hollywood hero moment, and I love it so much.
1: Yeah, it works really well, even if the, the chunk of onslaught that Thor punches out is suspiciously cylindrical. Like I said, big himbo bullet. Fair enough, um, now... In theory, from what we know, ripping out Xavier should stop Onslaught, but instead...
2: At last, freedom! Now,
1: behold my mighty hand! By his mighty hand, he means only the first five of his acts, but if he also said and his outstretched arm, he would have been... I'm sorry, I just I just really, really <laughs> want Onslaught to be um, Talmud.
0: I just like the idea of having a ritual Jewish meal every year where we have four glasses of wine and have scholarly discussions about onslaught and what yes. he means.
1: Yes, we're doing this. This is a new holiday. This is a, Look, Passover is my favorite holiday. I will uh, recapitulate it at absolutely any excuse. I like the idea of making onslaught better. I think we should have onslaught seders every year. I think this should be a new thing. I think we should do it at, at a convention next year. We can We can keep saying, you know, like, I don't know. Next year at Emerald City or next year at FlameCon or something. This is going to be great.
0: This is going to be so great.
1: Uh, All of that said,
0: though, this is the second time in as many issues because this actually follows the EMP issue of X-Men directly where Onslaught says, behold, my mighty hand. And then something explodes. Like, what is this, Sephiroth casting Supernova a whole bunch of times in a row in the last battle of FF7? Or, for that matter, Cable and Storm attacking Hulk with a team-up move the same way two issues in a row?
1: Yeah, basically, and I think that's part of what contributes to the my, my sense of Onslaught getting a little bit diluted at this point.
0: Completely agree, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I do love me some big explosions, and at this point in the crossover, if you just turn your brain off and look at the incredibly rad art of those explosions, it's still really enjoyable, but,
1: yeah, you know,
0: kind of feels like nothing's happening.
1: At this point, for instance, Onslaught levels several city blocks around Central Park, which were carefully assured have previously been evacuated, like, it feels very Saturday morning there.
0: Oh yeah, it's like all of the uh, bad guys uh, parachuting out of the exploding helicopters that the good guys blow up. Exactly. Professor X, though, is basically fine. Thor is very, very gentle in his professor carrying.
1: He is, however, entirely bereft of his powers.
0: And this'll last kind of a while, so good on the Marvel team for sticking with the plotline. Back on the roof, however...
1: Uatu and Apocalypse agree that the next step, the next element in this fight is really going to have to be Cable. Oh yeah, Cable. Well, what's his deal again? Okay, so Cable is the time-traveling badass cyborg future son of Cyclops and Phoenix, but also Cyclops and a clone of Phoenix, and he came back in time to the present for one and only one reason.
0: To track down Cannonball, the last external.
1: Wait, No. Maybe for two reasons. To do that and to track down and stop his nemesis, Strife.
0: Wait, no, it, it was a third thing. To uh, stop the rise of Apocalypse, the all-powerful supervillain who took over the world in Cable's future. Uh, yep, I think that's the one.
1: Anyway, he's a man of many purposes. And Onslaught sent the Hulk after Cable and Storm last issue. And Cable and Storm won, as did, you know, the Hulk who had been previously mind-controlled, But then they all got caught in Onslaught's big psychic EMP, which brings us to cable number 35. It is always darkest.
0: This issue is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Ian Churchill, inked by Scott Hanna and Art Tiber, colored by Mike Thomas, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. So we are right back to The Watcher and Apocalypse, but way more epic, and I say that Talking about a comic that comes after a comic drawn by Joe Matarera. the Watcher's cape is positively Spawn-esque, the way it just billows as he hovers over Onslaught's Ebon Citadel, and he tells us that the Age of Wonders is ending, because the man who personified its hope for a better tomorrow has now become Onslaught.
1: Wait, hovers over. Given that the Watcher's uniform is a miniskirt, this raises some questions about visibility from below.
0: Do you think he wears heart boxers like in cartoons? I bet he wears heart boxers like in cartoons.
1: I bet he wears no underwear at all.
0: Oh, man. The uh, entire race of watchers? Commando. Like yeah. Scotsman.
1: Yeah. Yep. Just just dangling it out there. I mean, we're also assuming that that's where watchers keep their genitalia.
0: Oh, yeah. They could keep them in a phylactery, like a lich.
1: Well, or anywhere else on their body. Like, for all we know when we're looking at what we assume to be Uatu's face, like that's actually his ovipositor or whatever.
0: Oh man, maybe that's why his head's so big. Very complicated plumbing in there.
1: We just don't know.
0: Well, anyway, whatever's dangling or not dangling happens in a genuinely excellent double-page spread. As the Watcher and Apocalypse watch from above, below, Cable and the Invisible Woman are mutually shielding him with the telekinesis, her with her different telekinesis, against the telepathic storm, and they're in front of this gigantic smashed sentinel head with rubble all around, and, like, Cable's techno-organic virus is still out of control, so his left arm is all jagged and is spindly and elongated, and about a third of that side of his body his torso and face, are too. This is something Ian Churchill really, really excels at, that mix of sharp and soft, and things looking heroic, but also, for lack of a better word, painful.
1: Yeah, Churchill really, really sells the state of Cable's body and the progression of the techno-organic virus here very, very effectively.
0: Absolutely. I gotta say, like, Cable as a solo book, there are a bunch of different artists, but It has some really good ones. There's one whose name totally escapes me right now, but whose style very much evokes Jack Kirby, who draws a long run later, that is also great and very different. Like, it's a better book than I thought it would be before I read through it all a while back. Nate and Sue talk about parenthood, and also about how hard saving Franklin
2: will be.
1: Until Apocalypse drops in with some exposition of his own. I have waited so very long for this
2: moment. Two warriors, their destinies entwined through eternity, meeting as one era ends and another dawns. For what better time to test the strength of a people, to see who among them will be strong enough to survive! Not everything's about you,
0: Apocalypse. He disagrees. The narration's got its own take.
1: Cable's whole life is about this single moment. He was born for the sole purpose of destroying the villain who stands before him.
0: So the joke we made earlier about how Cable's purpose for being in the present kept being rewritten. Yeah, at this point, there are no traces of Cannonball the External. The strife thing has really been minimized. At this point, Cable's whole deal is that he opposes Apocalypse. That is his complete purpose. And this is kind of the first big meeting the characters have had in the main timeline, right?
1: Yeah, but Apocalypse is not here for a confrontation. He wants to talk. Yeah. He wants Onslaught gone, and he claims that he knows how to get Franklin Richards out of there.
0: So like we were talking about before, survival of the fittest is one thing, but, you know, the universe is where Apocalypse keeps his stuff.
1: Cable has... Absolutely no time for this, but Sue is all ears, and Sue is the more powerful one of them, so she's able to basically stick an invisible shield between Cable and Apocalypse and force Cable to hear Apocalypse out.
0: I really enjoy the way that Sue kind of treats, like, the entire world as kids to whom she is a mom. This is very much like just her sighing and saying, don't make me pull this car over, and she's totally right every time.
1: Don't make me pull over this crossover event. (laughs)
0: So Apocalypse's plan Is that he and Cable Are going to stealth into the Ebon Citadel God I love that name Through the astral plane Where Onslaught is vulnerable Because he's a largely psychic entity But Apocalypse needs Cable to take him there And Cable laments Once again I must sacrifice what should be done For what must be done
1: And Cable tells the invisible woman that she's gonna need to stay behind, but telepathically tells her to trust him, so it's clear he's got something else up his sleeve.
0: And then Cable and Apocalypse just teleport away, but wait a minute, they're going to the astral plane. Shouldn't they be leaving their bodies, like, helpless and vulnerable on that rooftop? I mean, it was kind of a great big plot point that Onslaught was able to uh, come from the astral plane into the physical world, like, that's supposed to be a pretty big barrier between the two.
1: Remember what I was saying about things kind of falling apart in the second half?
0: They kinda do, it's true. Oh, well, at least the Astral Plane looks pretty awesome. It's uh, kind of like Walter Simonson's Outer Space from Thor meeting up with Steve Ditko's Dark Dimension from Doctor Strange. Like, it's not super elaborate, but what little we see of it?
1: Pretty rad. It, it definitely feels like an appropriate setting to roller skate enthusiastically.
0: Oh, shit. I thought the black lights were cool at the roller skating rink that I used to go to as a kid.
1: Yeah, you should have been skating on the Astral Plane, my friend.
0: I wonder if I still have those skates. And if they're astral. Probably not, probably have to buy new ones. Anyway, Apocalypse is really smug and pleased about this whole arrangement and Cable is so, so mad. Like Apocalypse will say one little thing and then Cable will just rant about how Apocalypse is the worst megalomaniacal villain in the history of history and it's pretty great. Apocalypse actually even offers to cure Cable of the techno-organic virus that he infected him with and Cable refuses purely out of spite as far as I can tell. Although it's weird, Apocalypse says that he infected Cable at birth, and that is definitely not true. Cable was only infected after a great deal of child endangerment, courtesy X-Factor.
1: See, you know how we were going to make Onslaught make sense, and that was our goal here? Yeah. So, my retcon for this, my my no-prize explanation, is that Apocalypse doesn't actually know precisely what birth is because, you know, he gets reborn a lot. Like, he comes out of his sarcophagus a bunch, or he gets souped up electronically and and yells, yeah, I am reborn, and all. Maybe he just thinks, like, the first time a child is on public display.
0: Maybe. Or, we've talked about how Apocalypse is really full of himself. Maybe he thinks that people are only born the first time they see Apocalypse, because everything before that is just irrelevant. That scans. Anyway, in the Ebon Citadel, Onslaught is surveying the ruined city around him.
1: Now, this might be a good time to talk about Onslaught's form, because he's in his original form here, and he really hasn't been for the rest of this phase. He's got a new, souped-up, fancy, evolved form.
0: Yeah, in the issue of Uncanny we just got done covering, he goes from looking like a great big Magneto, to looking like this kind of spindly, hunched-over, I don't know, sentinel
1: skeleton, almost? Kind of looks like if Magneto fucked General Grievous. (laughs) You are one hundred percent correct. And like <laughs> not what their offspring would look like, but like what, what 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 it would look like if you just walked in on that.
0: Oh geez, I mean people are into what they're into, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's actually really cool. Like when Xavier gets pulled out of Onslaught. Shortly after that, Onslaught is in this new form. And I like that. I like that transition that once he's not as linked to Xavier and thus not as linked to Magneto for complicated reasons, he has more of his own independent identity. And like so many of the tie-ins in phase two and impact Two, just forget about that. And he's just in his original form again, which kind of like dulls a great deal of the thematic weight of
1: that transformation. I like the narrative conceit of that, but I also do think his original form was cooler.
0: I mean, I would agree, yeah, he's more of, like, a diffuse general villain in his second form. I don't know, there's gotta be some explanation for why he keeps going back and forth. Um, we'll, we'll get to that. But for now, yes, original Magneto-looking form, goddammit. I guess he's a little different, though. I mean, he's got, like, Franklin Richards in this bubble on his back.
1: So, like, one of those backpacks that they, for, like, carrying around your tiny dog?
0: Exactly! Oh, maybe he could have Franklin and a psychic papoose.
1: Maybe maybe instead of Franklin, he could have just, like, a confused chihuahua?
0: <laughs> I love this plan. I mean, I don't know. Like, Sue would probably still be as motivated. She's a uh, woman who deeply cares about who she deeply cares about. And if she had a pet, I'm sure she'd deeply care about that pet, too.
1: I, I misspoke. I, I said a confused chihuahua. That was a redundant statement. All chihuahuas are deeply confused. Legit. And you would be, too so onslaught is still trying to sweet talk franklin into working with him voluntarily i know you are frightened we are always frightened by what we do not understand know only this you will play a critical role in changing a world that was destined to collapse upon itself had i not arrived to become its savior I just wanna go home.
2: You are home,
1: child. And when Apocalypse and Cable arrive, Onslaught detects them immediately and sends psychic constructs of post that's his his herald. The Hulk and regular Magneto off to fight them.
0: Oh, it's just little mini-bosses. It's like that time at the end of Final Fantasy IV when you have to fight all four fiends in a row again.
1: Are you trying to see how many Final Fantasy games you can bring up in this episode?
0: This episode? Hell! This podcast?
1: That gives you a lot of space. Well,
0: there are a lot of Final Fantasy games.
1: These are both guys who tend to yell dramatically a lot, and it's pretty fun seeing them working together and, you know, yelling together, as Cable says.
0: Fight on, Eternal One. If for no other reason than our day to be tested against each other still awaits us.
1: And Apocalypse responds.
2: One which I look forward to with eager anticipation. Chosen One.
1: Now, of course, when Apocalypse said that he knew how to extract Franklin from Onslaught, He didn't say safely, and so it turns out that his plan was to kill Franklin.
0: As he does so, though, boink, right up against an invisible shield, like that time I got too drunk and walked into a sliding glass door. The invisible woman uh, was here the whole time. Cable was just telepathically masking her, and Apocalypse does his whole, ah, but the needs of the many, an invisible woman basically just tells him to fuck off.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people just kind of tell Apocalypse to fuck off in this issue. Fair enough.
0: This whole thing doesn't really work out, though, because amid the infighting, Onslaught has a chance to teleport all the good guys, uh, and Apocalypse, back outside. He still has Franklin Richards. The heroes lose.
1: Um, Onslaught tries to tell Franklin that this is just an example of how people are terrible and betray each other no matter what which Franklin does not buy for a second.
0: Yeah, it's like the time Onslaught tried to convince Jean Grey that everyone was hypocritical, and she's like, uh, I know, but they're still awesome because they're people. It kind of makes sense. I mean, Onslaught is a simplistic character in a lot of ways. He's built off some very straightforward, uh, not very well thought through emotions.
1: And he couldn't be more wrong here, because hidden as as he is in Onslaught's backpack, Franklin finds himself for the first time feeling actual hope.
0: Yeah. He's going to do some awesome things and then make Heroes Reborn, which, well, opinions vary. Apocalypse is done with all of this and just teleports away with two middle fingers raised and then debates with the Watcher whether what's doing what's necessary or standing up for principle is more uh, fit. Um, Anyway, they're not really going to do much more in this crossover. So, what do we think about this first big apocalypse cable interaction? Like, they've overlapped a little like an Executioner song, but this is the first big one. Is it worth the wait?
1: Underwhelming. Really, really underwhelming. I mean, if we were going to have these two team up to face Onslaught, it should have had some major, major, major repercussions, and it just kind of didn't.
0: Yeah, they just sort of bicker for a while, and then they lose completely, and then Apocalypse leaves, and, like, that's the whole thing. I mean, I like the Cable Invisible Woman interactions, I like the Cable Apocalypse banter, Onslaught is always fun, but this issue is just kind of a big nothing, and this should have been enormous.
1: Absolutely agreed.
0: Ah, well, let's move on to some more Nathan-based hijinks.
1: Right, if one's disappointing, we've always got a backup, and that is Nate Gray. So- What's he been up to throughout Onslaught? Well, the
0: collective X-teams noticed that Onslaught had been Facebook-stalking Nate Gray, that's the teen sort of version of Cable from the Age of Apocalypse reality, the same way Onslaught had been Facebook-stalking Franklin Richards, and, well, Franklin Richards got shoved into a backpack.
1: Now, as luck would have it, Nate had recruited the Avengers to go fight the X-Men for basically no reason. Well, anyway, he'd been convinced that Xavier was evil since before Xavier actually had been evil. So he had showed up at the X-Mansion, and after the usual misunderstanding-based fight, Nate had agreed to hang out with X-Force so that they could protect him from Onslaught.
0: Alas, they weren't expecting... Mr. Sinister, whose Age of Apocalypse equivalent had thoroughly ruined Nate's life.
1: Now, this Sinister thoroughly ruined Nate's day by knocking out X-Force, capturing Nate, and dragging him off to help fight Apocalypse.
0: Which brings us to X-Man number 19... Called, of course, Shades of Grey.
1: This is written by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Steve Scross, inked by Butlerosa, Rosa, colored by Mike Thomas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Gamacraft.
0: I don't remember if we've talked much about Steve Scroess' art, but it's weird as hell and I love it.
1: Yeah, it works very well for this title, I think.
0: So exaggerated. Apocalypse's lips are just so pointy in that Age of Apocalypse flashback we see.
1: And Sinister's throne has these great kind of tentacular roots there. At first, I thought they were supposed to be like organs or blood vessels growing up, but they've also got suckers on the side, octopus arm style.
0: I do enjoy when everybody remembers that Sinister's not just like a cold clinical scientist. He's also into some really horror show, monstery aesthetics.
1: Oh, yeah. Sinister is all about body horror. Just, you know, not his.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's actually a great way of putting it.
1: So Sinister now has Nate captive, and he spends most of the issue trying to convince Nate to let Sinister mold him into the apocalypse-killin' engine he was created to be, and Nate spends most of the issue being less than impressed by Sinister's plan.
0: Yeah, it's basically just Sinister being smug at Nate a whole bunch, and then Nate just giving him, like, teenager-style whatevers in response. You're not
1: my real dad!
0: (laughs) <laughs> right. There's one part I really, really enjoy of that sinister smug, though, as he talks about uh, Nate's recent love life.
1: I already knew that I would need you, Summerseed. And I would have you. Aware that you are of an age which tends to prove most susceptible to certain obvious charms, I was equally confident that Threndy would provide the most direct route to your...
0: His what, Sinister? His what?
1: His dick, Miles.
0: Oh, yeah. Lil Nate. Uh, Threnody, of course, is the woman who had some sort of unspecified mental illness, an old issue of X-Men, who was thriving off the death energy coming off of victims of the now basically forgotten legacy virus. Uh, In X-Men, she's been a love interest for Nate after he got done with his uh, ghost alternate universe kinda mom Madeline Pryor being his love interest
1: Nate's got an interesting life
0: sure does I do like this though I like the Sinister's plot was to put Thrundy in the path of Nate assuming they would bond as A people who hated Sinister and B just people who might click but of course, Threnody was a trap. Those weird little machine things she wears on the side of her head apparently helped Sinister get a psychic backdoor into Nate's mind. Like, Threnody was so convinced she was playing Sinister. Of course she wasn't. Nobody plays Sinister, except perhaps a different Sinister.
1: Definitely a different Sinister. And I mean, we've seen that happen at this point. Not not at this point, onslaught point, but at this point, you know, in, in 2021.
0: Have you been reading Hellions, listeners? You should. It's great.
1: Now, Nate is showing Sinister some of his less savory Age of Apocalypse memories, um, to Sinister's amazement, because that kind of projection theoretically shouldn't be possible, when they are interrupted by a cry for help that only Nate can hear.
0: Uh, Okay, two things. Um, One, we have seen that before. Milan, of the Acolytes could project his thoughts uh, onto computer screens in his case, but it's a very handy expositional power. And second, I love how just offended Mr. Sinister is that Nate is distracted and not paying attention to his giant villain speech that he's been giving the entire issue. Like, I think that's his only objection. He's like, wait, why are you not listening to me? I mean, I'm me.
1: We and Nate are led to believe that the voice calling for help is Franklin, but Sinister recognizes it for what it is. A trap. And, of course, Onslaught naps Nate.
0: Onslaught in, once again, his old form.
1: God damn it. So, Nate kind of fucked everything up again.
0: But at least he did so with good
1: intentions. That only helps if you're Longshot.
0: Yeah, and I've met Longshot, and Nate Gray, you are no Longshot.
1: So that brings us finally to X-Force. And they have not been up to much. Uh, last we saw them, they were all getting collectively knocked out by Mr. Sinister.
0: Yeah, that's that's basically all the backstory we need. They're the second generation of X-Men, the new mutants, all grown up, and they're
1: unconscious. And so opens Xports number 58, Before the Dawn.
0: Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Anthony Castrillo, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by, you guessed it, Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this is listed as an impact two-book, not a phase two-book. Impact issues are, of course, the ones that are a little more tangential to the main plot. And I think it's actually an excellent example of that. Like, it's clearly part of the Onslaught crossover. Everything that happens in this is because of what's going on in Onslaught. But it's very self-contained. So uh, I kind of like it. I like it when this labeling system is used correctly, which it uh, often is not in Onslaught.
1: It's used incorrectly often enough that it's hard to determine what correctly actually constitutes.
0: I suppose that's true, but I like the way it's used here. I also kind of like this over-the-top narration, even if it seems like it would fit Excalibur better than X-Force.
1: Run, boy, run. When King Arthur shouted those words to the boy Tom Warwick, it was a call to arms across the land. For though Camelot had fallen, Arthur knew that his dream, his hope, would live on in the young. The Daring.
0: And so, yeah, this is an issue that explicitly positions X-Force as hope for the future, which, okay, I buy that, but also, like, Generation X? Aren't, aren't they supposed to kind of be hope for the future? Does it seem weird to you that X-Force and Generation X don't have more conflicts, I guess, both, like, thematically in terms of who really is the next generation of X-Men, and also just, like, fist fighting.
1: There should be at least one forbidden romance between them.
0: Okay, who would hook up with who? Let's figure this out.
1: I, I don't know, but the idea, you know, is that, that it's someone from, like, the bad kid's school, which would be X-Force in this context, and someone at, at like, the, the more conventional good kid's school, which would be Generation X.
0: Well, Paige is definitely the most good kid, good kid, but, you know, later on, she hooks up with Angel and has sex with him in the sky over her mom, so maybe we shouldn't rope her into anything even retroactively.
1: I feel like the one most likely is probably Chamber.
0: Oh, okay yeah he's a bit of a of an edgy badass himself i could see him seeking out somebody
1: well he's he's older than he's older than the other folks on the generation x team he's lived more independently he is kind of fed up with everything all the time in ways that i feel like would fit well thematically with a lot of x force
0: and you know if we're doing the bad boy from gen x what about the good girl from x force that i could actually see him having a dynamic with that being siren
1: yeah okay i can see it Yeah,
0: better than frickin' Deadpool. Stupid Deadpool.
1: Wait, Chamber hooked up with Deadpool?
0: Uh, no, Siren did. I mean, maybe Chamber did. I don't know, I haven't read every issue.
1: Yeah, I haven't read any Deadpool. I'm perfectly willing to accept either of those.
0: Okay, well, we'll let the mystery be. Anyway, all of that said, this issue's opening kind of surprised me, and I kind of love it. It's a flashback to the scene from marvel graphic novel number four the new mutants when we first met sunspot playing soccer and it's a really cool reproduction like the penciler here has a very different art style than bob mcleod's the panel angles are different but it's absolutely the same scene like they've done their homework
1: yeah the feel is really consistent
0: totally like even the uniform colors and player numbers are are the same So, Jay, what happened in the original version of this scene, way back from the 80s?
1: Gosh, that's a good question. Now, I believe Bobby was attacked by his opponents after scoring a goal. He went into his sunspot form, and that kind of led to his life falling apart, his girlfriend being killed, and a bunch of other mess that ultimately landed him on the New Mutants.
0: But this time, there's no conflict. He scores the goal, everybody says he's great, and things are just fine. He's a hero to all of his friends and family and fans, and life is good.
1: But before he can settle into that perfect life with his living dad, with his living girlfriend, the silhouette of a boy appears and tells Bobby that he's X-Force's heart and soul, and he needs to convince the rest of them to come back.
0: So this boy, I think he's at least supposed to resemble Lil Charlie, the kid version of Professor X that Onslaught created to uh, convince Franklin Richards to come with him. It's never explicit, but that's pretty clear, right?
1: It is explicit, actually, toward the end of the issue that this is this is sort of like the remaining good and hope left of Charles Xavier. Um, I thought initially when he was just a silhouette, we were supposed to think he was Franklin at first. No,
0: no Franklin. He's just uh, in in the backpack along with the magic cards and the leftover half a sandwich.
1: Yeah, he doesn't talk like Franklin. He talks—honestly, he talks kind of like an over-the-top narrator.
0: I'm fine with that. There's room for more than one of those in the Marvel Universe. Hell, there's room for more than a thousand. But this is going to be our formula for this issue. We're going to see a sort of everything-is-great dream life for each of our members of X-Force, and then first just good little Charlie— And then good little Charlie and Sunspot, etc., will tell those members of X-Force why they should leave this perfect fantasy because they represent the something of the team. So I was thinking as we go through this, maybe we talk about A, does this fantasy of a perfect life make sense for this character? And B, is the quality that they are listed as embodying one that makes sense for the character?
1: Sounds good. Let's do it.
0: Okay, so Sunspot. His fantasy is just being a soccer hero and having everybody love him. What do you think?
1: I think it works. It's much simpler, it's a much less ambiguous sort of good and bad delineation, and it gives back everything that that being that his mutation, that, that the complication of his life had taken from him.
0: As far as him being X-Force's heart and soul?
1: I don't know about soul, but I'd buy heart.
0: It's weird, because he was actually gone from X-Force for most of the team's history. If you were going to say he was the heart of the new mutants... I think you could argue that, like it was either him or maybe Cannonball, but Cannonball's not around so he could be the remaining heart. But uh, yeah, Soul agreed. Not sure.
1: So, who's next?
0: Well next actually isn't a fantasy life. We are back in the real world with Siren who's sonically screaming herself free of the rubble from Mr. Sinister's big attack and sees that the team around her seems unconscious or possibly dead. But, hey, hey, wait a minute. Caleb and Boom Boom were totally elsewhere when everything blew up. Why are they here?
1: Maybe Sinister took took a little bit of time and dragged them all to the same place.
0: Maybe. Or maybe, like, uh, the mansion actually slopes slightly, and this is the lowest point, so everyone just rolled.
1: Yeah, okay. That sounds good to me.
0: She tries telepathically calling Cable for help, but he is busy with the Paka stuff in his own book, and just says, hey, I'll do what I can, but be strong. He clearly trusts her, which, you know, good. He should.
1: Alright, so she's trying to wake the team up from the outside. Whose dreams do we get next?
0: Well, we go to Boom Boom. I mean, okay, Meltdown, but I'm gonna call her Boom Boom. Forever.
1: So Boom Boom is in a forest modeled after the one in which, or the illusory one in which Sabertooth was imprisoned in the danger room for all of that time, and in fact... She's there repeatedly fighting and blowing up Sabretooth, um, immune to his confident taunts, just he keeps on, you know, coming back up to fight her. She keeps on throwing time bombs at him, and he's gone.
0: And it is brutal. The artist does that thing where you see the silhouette of a corpse, but like its ribs are exposed and sticking out, just to make it clear how thoroughly dead and gorified that corpse was. And yeah, she's just satisfied. She doesn't Maybe satisfied's the wrong word, because she doesn't appear to be showing much of any emotional response. This is just what she wants to do, over and over and over, after Sabretooth betrayed her trust the way so many people had betrayed her trust.
1: Until the now silhouetted sunspot and uh, Silhouette Kid, we can just call him Silhouette Kid for now, show up to talk her out of it.
0: Sunspot says the team needs her for her fighting spirit. I mean, she's meltdown these days. She's not one to run or hide. Boom Boom agrees.
1: Yep. Wouldn't miss it for the world.
0: Alright, so the thing she wants most right now is killing Sabretooth over and over. What do we think?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll buy that.
0: Fighting spirit?
1: Yes, absolutely. Alright. Although, honestly... I would have taken her as heart, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's a little less earnest, but she is definitely that committed. But, uh, I think Fighting Spirit, I agree, it's it's a good option, so I think we're, we're two for two with Tabitha.
1: Speaking of heart, that brings us to Caliban, which is the one that got me at least right in the heartstrings.
0: It starts with a phrase I was not expecting.
1: A long time ago,
0: in a galaxy far,
1: far away...
0: And then continues to a scene that after that line I definitely wasn't expecting.
1: Which is Superman's origin story. A rocket that falls to Earth um, with a baby in it. The baby is found by kindly farmers in this scenario played by Cable and Domino. And the baby is, of course, Caliban who is is loved and cherished and able to be helpful, help, extra helpful around the farm with his powers until Sunspot and Meltdown and... Silhouette Kid show up for him.
0: One thing that really interested me about Caliban's scene is that he appears completely aware that this is a fantasy, and he's fine with that. Like, he's got this line...
1: Caliban likes it here. Caliban guesses this is all he ever wanted.
0: It's fascinating to me that the character that's just portrayed as super dumb is the one that gets it when none of the others really do. As for the quality Sunspot wants from Caliban, it's his childish sense of hope which seems kind of patronizing but I mean, okay
1: it seems super patronizing I would go with, you know, sense of hope but that childish really didn't need to be thrown on well let's do the
0: reverse order here sense of hope, do you think that's Caliban's thing?
1: Mm, I think it could be, yeah I think camaraderie might be more Yeah, I would go for
0: camaraderie way more, because Caliban's been through some awful, awful shit, and he has given in to despair more than once. I mean, that's why he's in his monstrous form, because he abandoned all of his ideals to have Apocalypse make him strong enough to never get, you know, genocidally bullied again.
1: And if there's one thing that Caliban has always been about, like, from his first appearance, it's group loyalty. Like... This dude, to to paraphrase one of my favorite Bruce Brooks quotes, would not leave a treehouse in a lightning storm if he thought the tree cared about him. And he is absolutely committed to whoever he's working with, whatever team he's on. And that, I think, is where they should have gone with this.
0: Yeah, completely agree. So, that's a miss. As for his fantasy?
1: Oh yeah, 100%.
0: 100%. 100%. And freaking same? Like, I wasn't expecting to suddenly have all of these feelings in the middle of, like, a random onslaught tie-in in and x force
1: but I love that scene. Yeah, it's really, really good. I also really like the touch of Cable and Domino as the Kents. I don't know why, but it's extremely charming.
0: There's something about Domino wearing that very modest, very simple and plain farmer dress that to me is just hilarious for some reason. That brings us to Warpath, who's running with a buffalo herd and wrestling one of the buffalo to the ground with his brother John with Thunderbird. They are just two muscly brothers who love each other very much and fight big cows.
1: The buffalo look more like um highland island cattle, which are really, really woolly. And I don't know why, but that just makes this seem more seem more charming.
0: Oh, I hope they don't hurt the Highland cattle. Highland cattle are nice, I think. Well, our ever-growing crowd of silhouettes is here to bring Warpath back into the fold for his courage, his ability to put aside his personal doubts for the greater cause. Warpath has one question.
1: Bobby, can my brother come too?
0: Thunderbird's time has long passed. Only Warpath has the choice to continue. So courage focusing on the goal ahead of personal doubts yeah 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 totally i totally dig that it's interesting to me though that this is warpath's fantasy because he spent so much of his recent years trying to get out of the shadow of his brother trying to define himself based on something other than his grief and anger over his brother's death
1: well and if you think about it this is kind of the ultimate example of that
0: just having that death have never happened yeah Kind of like that one scene in the X-Men Star Trek comic, but, uh, different.
1: Yes, but different. So Shatterstar is next, and I really like his, his scenario. He is he is just sitting under a tree, as he puts it, stopping to smell the vegetation.
0: Did he look more like Banshee than like Shatterstar to you when you first saw him?
1: He looked pixie-ish to me.
0: Yeah, he's got you know his red hair and his uh, pipe-like toothpick. So there's that. But he's wearing this wide collared yellow shirt with high yellow boots and this wide belt over tight black pants. And he just he just looks like he has the, the the luck of the stereotypical Irish. And he's about to take us to Cassidy Keep to meet the leprechauns.
1: Well, after smelling the vegetation, anyway.
0: But yeah, he doesn't want any part of the world's confusion. He just wants to be him and have it be simple, which given the Benjamin Russell stuff that's just starting to become part of the plot. Okay.
1: Well, and Richter leaving.
0: Oh yeah, Richter leaving. But Sunspot and the other silhouettes are here for Shatterstar's passion.
1: Passion? Yeah. Yeah, I'll buy that. That that works for me. Um I wasn't certain about it, but I think I think ultimately that it it does work for him.
0: And as for the fantasy of just running the hell away?
1: Yeah, and I think it actually makes for a really good contrast and a really good illustration of how much he's grown as a character, because we would have expected his fantasy to be all about fighting and stardom and adulation, and it's not. It's about being able to be somewhere quiet by himself and just be himself instead of performing.
0: Two for two for Gavidra Seven or possibly Benjamin Russell.
1: And finally, we've got Domino. And she's just in this empty
0: black void, pointing her guns everywhere, looking very much on edge, and not interacting with anything. And we learn that that's because she didn't want any of the situation that she's in. She didn't want to be in charge of a bunch of kids to get pawned off on them by cable. She didn't want to be caught up in all of these conflicts that are not her own. She certainly doesn't want her past to come back and bite her.
1: And Sunspot says, well, they need her because she brings belief in themselves and the ability to be their best.
0: And that right there, absolutely. Domino's the team mom. She's amazing at that. I mean, she's the team wine mom, as we have often discussed. Like, she's not necessarily the most responsible parental figure, but she is really good at that level of just encouragement and rock-solid support. But what about this weird fantasy or, like, absence of a fantasy?
1: I think that they're not allowed to draw what Domino's actual fantasies are in a comic under the CCA.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's it. Because, yeah, this—it's just nothing. I mean, it's literally nothing, but it's also thematically nothing. And part of me wonders if that's just because we still don't really know anything about Domino at this point in continuity. So what would she want? What would she be into? She's always just been defined by what she's not into, like, you know, being replaced by copycat that
1: one time. Yeah, this feels like a cop-out. They could at least have thrown in a giant bathtub.
0: (laughs) Missing bathtub, so, uh, yeah, just one out of two for Domino. So anyway, we have the team fully gathered at this point, and some version of the kid silhouette tells them all to go into the light, to not look back. But the kid's Onslaught, who's reaching out for them. And he's actually in his new form this time. I appreciate and respect that. Thank you, Onslaught, for your consistency. Or, I guess, uh, thank you, Anthony Castrillo, for paying attention.
1: And the team concludes that no, looking back is good. The only way for a better tomorrow is to fight today.
0: Wait, wait, looking back is good? Huh? Does that make sense? No. Oh, well, uh, anyway, the important part is that they look very heroic and they seem very dedicated, and I guess I can get behind that.
1: And in honor of their heroism, another kid appears. This is, in fact, good little Charlie. He he said he could only protect one member of the team, so he protected Siren, who's the team's inspiration, um, you know, for her firm belief in their cause. And he was able to, you know, keep her awake, which gave the rest of them time to wake up.
0: Okay, so her quality is firmly believing in the cause? I don't know, she just sort of randomly ended up on X-Force many issues ago. I guess we don't really know much about what Siren does or doesn't want.
1: Could maybe spin this as dedication.
0: Okay, I mean, she's certainly more responsible than the rest of these fuck-ups.
1: Yeah, I don't really see her as necessarily having a straightforward thematic place here, at least not as, as pithy a one as the rest of the cast has so far, because as you said, she just hasn't been developed well enough yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, so many of them are defined by their internal and external conflicts and how they've dealt with them, and her biggest external conflict was ages ago, which was the Black Tom versus Banshee thing, and her biggest internal conflict was alcoholism, and they aren't really addressing that here, and I don't know if it would make sense to do so.
1: Yeah, I think determination would be the way to go with her, with what we've seen so far.
0: Okay, okay. So there we go. There's an Impact 2 issue. Doesn't directly uh, impact the story, except to get X-Force back into the fight. But, I don't know.
1: It's a fun little bit of uh,
0: character work. I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it's not half bad. It's definitely the kind of thing that I look for in a side story.
0: Well, that is four more issues of Onslaught done. We are now very firmly into Phase 2, and boy, there's a lot left.
1: Meanwhile, though, you've got questions.
0: Lucas of the Math of You asks on Tumblr, "What do you personally think Banshee's ultrasonic scream sounds like to his fellow heroes? Is it like the emergency broadcast system? Is it a dog whistle where most humans can't actually hear it? Is it infrasonic so you'd feel it more than hear it? Or does it just sound like a dude going ah all the time?"
1: So I think personally that it sounds like a theremin, and its perceived pitch varies subtly based on his body positioning and stuff like wind resistance. Now, I have no canonical basis for this belief. I just think it would be really cool.
0: Oh, man. Now I'm just imagining him flying around to the original version of the Doctor Who opening theme. Okay, yeah, I'm totally into that. Yes. But that said, I mean, we know it definitely does vary. Like, he's able to use it for different things. He's able to synchronize with different frequencies. The flying one, I always assumed it was just a loud, slightly but not overwhelmingly painful, high-pitched, continual sound.
1: I do love the idea of it just being a dude going, ah all the time. Or possibly, woo! Spring break! (laughs) Yes.
0: Quality content, listeners.
1: An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Why did Onslaught want to make Captain America's pecs ridiculously huge?
0: Oh boy. Okay, so uh, this anonymous listener is presumably referring to the infamous Rob Liefeld drawn Captain America cover, which is part of Heroes Reborn after Onslaught, when the heroes, you know, uh, it turns out didn't sacrifice themselves but in a pocket dimension. Um, yeah, his, his specs are, are, are horrifyingly large in that, just comically ridiculously large. But here's the thing you got to remember it wasn't Onslaught that created the Heroes Reborn universe, it was Franklin Richards a little boy who basically idolizes all of the superheroes around him. So, technically, he was the one that gave Cap the giant pecs by reimagining Cap in this pocket dimension as the most Liefeldian character ever. And I feel pretty good about that, actually. I mean, if it's a little enthusiastic kid creating his heroes, of course they would look like anatomically exaggerated action figures. Like, totally, I'm into this. I don't know what Liefeld's excuse was. He was young, but not
1: that young. Man, that was both weirder and less weird than what I was expecting. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The mic today goes to... Well, the mic today goes to a sexy onslaught. Though birthed by the frustration of
2: a savior and the rage of Magneto, I now rise free from the prison of their minds. So too does my form change to reflect my new independence. But what is that, Christian Ayotte? You say my form is inconsistent from one issue to the next? That is because this new robot skeleton look is my... sexy form. And I will not show it to just anyone. I mean, you don't just wear a skimpy Speedo to your office job, right? Natali Gerani understands. He has shared with me his own sexy form. A chitinous armored exterior with hundreds of wrinkly legs underneath, all under a bulbous and demonic skull face with hundreds of teeth. Only to be shared with the appropriate, appreciative audience, of course. Christian, learn from our dread and sexy example. Create your own psychic sexy form. Perhaps, mandibles dripping with psionic venom and yard-long steel claws, or dozens of burning eyes surrounded by a matrix of blades. I mean, different people are into different things. At least, until I turn humanity into a telepathically malleable hive mind. So you do you, buddy.
1: But for now, behold my sexy look! With that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn.
0: Our show is 100%
1: listener-supported.
0: If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free and maybe hear more of Sexy Onslaught sometime, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: Next week, to nobody's particular surprise... It's more Onslaught!
0: Yay? Yay! Yay!